Remember being a teenager? (laughs) I remember being a teenager and how every little indignity, any little thing, could really just send you into a rage. And so it'd be easy to imagine Neus Catala seething as she harvested grapes under the Catalan sun. Her brother was being sent to school to study to become a teacher, while she had to work in the fields of her small Spanish village. Her family could only afford to educate one of their children, so his dreams had been chosen over hers. Other teenagers may have accepted this just as the way things are, but not Neus. At the age of 14, she discovered the power of pushing back. A resolute, determined, fierce freedom fighter, until her death at 103, she won her first victory in those fields, demanding and securing equal pay for equal work. The year was 1930, and Neus would win and lose many more battles over the next 88 years. Welcome to The Sewing Circle, a women's history podcast. I'm Peyton Alexander, and I'd like to thank you for joining me today as we discuss this remarkable defender of freedom, dignity, and remembrance, Neus Catala. Bolstering her already willful spirit, Neus came of age in a turbulent political climate. As the world slogged through the Great Depression of the 1930s, Spain entered a period of reform known as the Second Spanish Republic. The dictatorship of General Miguel Primo de Rivera fizzled out in 1930 as the military expressed what can only be described as a half-hearted bid of support for his continued reign. King Alfonso XIII, having granted his people the opportunity to vote, was overthrown in just a few months' time, and these new liberal republic elections ushered in a wave of reforms, including freedom of speech and freedom of association, women being granted the right to vote, and the legalization of divorce. For a moment, the people of Spain were catapulted into a period of freedom they'd never experienced before. But the entire decade would prove to be a complicated and bloody back and forth with no quick or easy explanation. Class, political, and religious differences divided the people at various times, clashing violently for the future of Spain. In 1936, General Francisco Franco led the Spanish Army of Africa up to the mainland through Morocco, launching the country into civil war he was able to garner the support of a number of Islamic Moroccans who joined his violence for numerous reasons. Some believed in the righteousness of a fight against godless communism or for Spanish monarchy, whereas others realized that they could be paid and fed for their work during a time of impoverishment and starvation in Morocco. Approximately 136,000 Moroccans took part in this military coup, some as young as 12 years old. Julian Casanova, author of The Spanish Republic and Civil War, writes, There is no simple answer as to why the climate of euphoria and hope in 1931 was transformed into the cruel, all-destructive war of 1936. The Republic lasted for eight years, five in peace and three at war, and interpreting them still arouses passionate opinions rather than historical debate. 
And it's with that that I'd like you to know that I spent a really long time trying to get a handle on the Spain that Neus experienced. I spent hours trying to parse out the various groups jockeying for top billing during the Civil War, and it sent me down so many rabbit holes that really started to turn this episode into one about a bunch of men. So I eventually just had to stop and remind myself that I'm not a Spanish historian, much as I may want to be, and Casanova admits in his own book that even after 20 years of study, there are innumerable ways to interpret what happened during that time in Spain. So, deep breath, and bringing us back to Neus, the simplified version is that in 1939, the Second Spanish Republic came to an end as Franco was declared victorious. Mussolini's Italy and Hitler's Germany backed Franco's dictatorship, and the rest of the world turned a blind eye to the fascist foothold now established in Spain. The Unified Socialist Youth, hereafter known, you know, for the sake of ease, as the PCE, was an organization that was ultimately, after some reorganizing, the youth-centered arm of the Communist Party of Spain. It was extremely dangerous to be a member of the PCE. The organization had been flat-out outlawed, and many of its leaders had gone into exile. Despite this, the PCE maintained high membership, in part because anti-fascists, rather than subscribing just to its communist principles, they recognized that it was the only way to restore democracy. It was also the best organized resistance group against Franco's military, receiving substantial aid from the Soviet Union. Neus joined the PCE during the Civil War, beginning a lifelong relationship with communism. By this point, Neus moved to Barcelona to study nursing, having decided that her lack of education early on wasn't going to prevent her from achieving her dreams of working in hospital. But she didn't get to stay long, as she and her family were forced into exile while Franco flexed his far-right, bloody powers. Starting just before Christmas in 38, Franco's troops swiftly invaded Barcelona in January of 1939. Along with thousands of others, Neus fled the Nationalist Army and made her way to France. As the head of an orphanage, she led a group of 182 orphaned children through snow and bombs across the Pyrenees mountain range. With her help, the children were adopted into new families throughout Europe. She was 23 years old. Along with her family and other political refugees, she settled in Carsac, a small village of Dordogne, as the Vichy government turned France into a Nazi police state. She, along with her new husband, Albert Roger, joined the guerrilla resistance group the Maquis, named after the scrub of the remote, mountainous south of France, where many of the members were based. Empowered by sympathetic Brits and Americans, the rebel Maquisards were men and women who cut railway lines and blew up bridges, they smuggled guns and people, and they fought to reestablish the liberty, equality, and fraternity that had been trampled by the German occupation and replaced instead by work, family, and fatherland. Neus received and transmitted coded messages containing highly sensitive information for the resistance, sometimes hiding the papers in her hair under a scarf or in baskets of vegetables. She'd ride her bike or take the bus for many miles, 
ensuring safe delivery of the messages through Nazi checkpoints. She and her husband would also house other rebels and smuggle guns and ammunition. She said, In the Civil War and the Second World War, we women were not assistants, we were fighters. Before moving on, I'd like for us to just sit in her reality for a moment. She's in her mid-twenties, exiled from her homeland, and risking her life to continue doing what she's always done. Resisted. She's resisted inequality. She's resisted fascism. And ultimately, she's resisted complacency. She actively contributed to the resistance for years until neighbors exposed them to the Nazis. Neus and Albert were captured in November of 1943. I don't know if she last saw her husband when they were taken from their home in Karsak, or if she last saw him in Limoges, where she was interrogated and tortured through February. What I do know is that she was then sent to the concentration camp Ravensbrück, and Albert was sent to the camp Bergen-Belsen. They never saw each other again. have heard of Ravensbrück before. It was the largest single camp for female prisoners, second only in size to the women's camp of Auschwitz. Overcrowded by design, the camp had been built to house 6,000 women at once, but frequently incarcerated thousands more, with some estimates numbering 50,000. These conditions, exacerbated by grueling forced labor and next to no food, led to the lightning-fast transmission of disease. In total, 132,000 women and children passed through Ravensbrook, with 92,000 of the incarcerated dying on the grounds. There was a brothel in the camp, where prisoners were promised early release if they volunteered their bodies to German soldiers, but of course, these early releases never came. Women, including Neus, were often subjected to terrible medical experiments, such as bone grafting, amputation, and injections of untested drugs. Many women were sterilized or led to believe they'd been sterilized, and many didn't survive these experiments. Compared to some of the larger camps, the Nazis hadn't documented much of the brutality of Ravensbrück, but some prisoners had smuggled cameras into the camp and secretly took photographic evidence. Germaine Tillion, a French prisoner for 14 months, smuggled film rolls depicting medical experiments out of the camp in a daring escape in 1945. She described Ravensbrook as a world of horror that was a world of contradictions, more terrifying than the visions of Dante, more absurd than a game of snakes and ladders. Between 1942 and 1944, camp authorities arranged around 60 transports of women, numbering between 60 and 1,000 people each, to be sent to their deaths at the killing center in Hartheim near Linz, Austria. Neus, young and able-bodied, 
avoided these death selections and instead was sent south, along with many other political prisoners, to the work camp Flossenburg. I think that most people who are history buffs have a particular period of time or a subject that they really gravitate towards, and for me, that's always been World War II. As a kid, I preferred the History Channel to cartoons, and if you're the same as me, you know that there was a time when the H of the History Channel stood for Hitler. It was the Hitler Channel all day, every day. And so a lot of information about World War II is out there. And sadly, while there is no shortage of other examples, clearly the Holocaust dominates Western conversations around the mass extermination of people. I mentioned this because the first time I heard of Flossenburg was in the course of researching for this episode, and that gave me pause. And to in turn remember the sheer magnitude of what we're never going to know about one of the darkest periods in our humanity. To resist spiraling out on the depravity, instead, I'm choosing gratitude for the opportunity to learn about and speak about this example of resiliency. At Flossenburg, Neus worked in an arms factory. She was starved, beaten, and forced to work on the production line from sunup to sundown seven days a week. Even inside a labor camp, as the starvation was turning her into what she'd later describe as a skull with eyes, she continued the resistance. In her estimation, she and the other prisoners sabotaged 10 million bullets and artillery shells. In a 2013 interview, she said, We threw everything into the production line. Flies, cockroaches, oil, our own spit. Flossenburg was a dangerous place, and she witnessed atrocious things, but these little secretive acts, a cockroach here, some oil there, built solidarity and strength among those in the factory. From her obituary in the New York Times, I never, never cried before a Nazi, she said, adding that she cried only at night. They stole my sleep, she said, but they never took my freedom or my life. Flossenburg was liberated by the Soviet army on April 30th, 1945. A self-described bag of bones, widowed, presumably infertile, and furious that Franco had not been overthrown alongside Hitler and Mussolini, Neus reunited with her family in France and worked to rebuild her life. She kept the pinstripe uniform she'd been forced to wear in the camp, and one day, she realized she hadn't had her picture taken upon release. Some of the larger camps, like Dachau and Bergen-Belsen, had been photographed extensively upon liberation by the Allies. Camps like Flossenburg and Ravensbrück were passed over by the professional photographers. She recognized her responsibility to the women who would never be heard from again, and so she put on that symbol of ultimate suffering, tracked down a local photographer, and had her picture taken. Her work wasn't done. Just as she had with the Maquis, she secretly transmitted messages for the PCE and Spanish Communist Underground to bring down Franco while resuming her work as a nurse. She remarried a Spanish exile named Felix Sancho. Despite the experimentation she was subjected to at Ravensbrook, she gave birth to two children, Margarita and Luis. The years passed, 
and she dedicated her time to finding other survivors of the camps and compiling their stories, creating the anti-fascist organization Amakal de Ravensbrück, of which she was chairwoman up until her death. While Neus was not the only prisoner of Ravensbrück and Flossenburg to come from Catalonia, she was the only one to survive both camps. She and her family returned to Catalonia in 1978. Franco had died three years earlier, having named the grandson of the previous king of Spain as his successor. The son of the deposed king, Juan, was perceived to be too liberal to succeed Franco, despite having a more legitimate claim to the throne, whereas his son, Prince Juan Carlos, had publicly supported Franco for a very long time. He praised him for the economic growth and social changes he'd made to the country and served as acting head of state in Franco's poor health and decline. His accession was widely viewed as a guaranteed continuation of authoritarianism. Ironically, as king, he quickly abandoned this fascist legacy, much to the anger of many members of Spain's parliament. The year Neus and her family returned to Catalonia, the Spanish constitution was created and ratified, transitioning the country into a constitutional monarchy. King Juan Carlos had even met with leaders of the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party, signaling his government recognized the legitimacy of a left-wing political movement within Spain. In 1984, Neus published her book of the Resistance and Deportation, 50 Testimonials of Spanish Women. Over the next several years, she remained politically active and would frequently speak publicly about her time in the camps, giving voice to the women who couldn't speak for themselves. Following one classroom talk, she overheard one girl explain to another, that's the woman that defeated Hitler. There's a well-worn proverb that goes, man may work from sun to sun, but a woman's work is never done. At the age of 92 in 2007, Neus ran in the local elections in Barcelona and published an autobiographical novel, Testimony of a Survivor. Five years later, she published her memoirs, Ashes in the Sky. This brings us to 2015, when Neus, still an active member of the Communist Party and Amical de Ravensbrück, and continuing to earn awards from Spain and France for her dedication to the preservation of history and anti-fascist efforts, the regional government of Catalonia gave her its gold medal and its centenary medal, as well as declaring 2015 to be the year of Neus Catala. During the commemoration ceremony, the Minister of Welfare of Family said of Neus, She is a strong and caring woman, an anti-fascist fighter, a survivor of the Nazi death camps, and the reference and testimony for all the women who fought in the Spanish Civil War and World War II. She passed away at the age of 103 on April 13, 2019, in the same village in which she was born. For 88 years, from demanding equal pay at 14 to voting for Catalan independence at 102, Neus Catala stared down the darkness. A radical, a mother, and a fierce advocate of human rights, she died with the satisfaction of knowing she had outlived the fascist regimes that tried to kill her. Thank you for joining me today and supporting The Sewing Circle. 
You can find all the sources I use today on my website, sewingcirclepodcast.com. I'm at TSC underscore pod on both Twitter and Instagram if you'd like to keep up with the show, in addition to finding me on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to your favorite shows. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And until next time.